cheers to another episode of the Wine Notes Podcast. I'm your guide, AJ Weinzettel, on this journey of stories showcasing the people behind the wonderful world of wine, where we dive into conversations ranging from terroir, viticulture, to favorite music, superpowers, and more. Please enjoy this episode of the Wine Notes Podcast. Darren, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. You're quite welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. Uh, you know, right before we started recording, you know, I talked about the, uh, fall, you know, harvest just being right around the corner and, you know, the 2023 vintage to me has felt like it's just been a crazy fast vintage, right? I mean, we had a late spring, uh, and the, you know, once we got like bud break and, you know, the, the time, once we got the bud break, it was like, poop flowering happened. <laughs> And then we've had, you know, some hot temperatures and like, we're, you know, at the end of August and, you know, I saw that people are already picking sparkly, you know, this week. And I'm like, holy cow. Oh, uh, I'm curious. How is the 23 vintage looking for you? We, uh, at this point are sourcing about a third of the, our grapes from our estate and, uh, the other two thirds from other parts of the Willamette Valley and also Rogue Valley. So we do a few warm climate varietals. And I think our experience kind of mirrors what's going on in the rest of the valley. So late bud break, I think we were, we're high elevation. So we're kind of a week or two later than most other parts of the valley or most other vineyards in the valley, I should say. Um, so at this point, I would say we might be uh, average or up to a week ahead of average in terms of okay. our, what what grapes will come first off of our vineyard. Okay, well that's that's straight. It's I'm I'm curious to see you know how how things turn turn about. You know, it's always this this part of the the time of year where everybody just kind of holds their breath a little bit and makes mm -hmm. sure that you know we've had great weather. It's been great. Let's let's continue right. Yeah. And so we, we, um, we do have a sparkling program and those would be the first grapes that we pick. And, uh, that's usually the second week of September for us. So we could be a little earlier than that. I hope not because we're actually bottling through September 6th. Oh, um, so we'd like to get, get bottling done and before we bring any grapes in ideally. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I can imagine, uh, you know, kind of starting off early in, in your timeline, uh, if I understand your, understand correctly, your dad went to UC Berkeley in, you know, 68 to, to 71, um, uh, did he study viticulture there or, you know, what I, I, I couldn't get that information. Economics. Economics. Okay. And so then, you know, his, you know, traveling to Napa and and whatnot is that kind of what got him into the the rabbit hole of, of wine that's right yeah yeah he and my mother would uh go to napa I, I don't know how frequently but on some weekends that they had time and uh, i guess some extra money to spend on wine they right. would go well that 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 is awesome it's and did that kind of help influence your career to become a winemaker. I mean, I know that there has to be some influence there. Yeah, definitely. My dad was a big part of that. And I went to Oregon state for crop and soil science. 
uh, aka agronomy. And at the time I was there, they did not have a viticulture or enology program. Otherwise, I may have ended up there. I started out as a pre-vet major and then changed right. my major at the beginning of my junior year to uh, the crop and soil science. Okay. Yeah, there, there was a lot. It was a, it was a good time. I mean, I suppose any time that you're in, in college, it, it should be a good time. But it, in terms of my field, it was a good and interesting time to be there with the the excitement that was evident in the, the different departments about uh, trying to get viticulture and enology programs going at Oregon State, uh, even though they didn't have them at the time. So it, it was fun. Right. No, I, I, I can imagine. And you also uh, spent some time in, in the Peace Corps. Uh, right. And, you know, one of the things that you said, you know, you were often teaching someone that could not read and how to use genetics to improve their livelihood. Uh, <laughs> how, how did that feel? I mean, to be able to provide that level of influence on a person's livelihood and their life, you know, when, you know, you know, when reading was, you know, a, a difficult thing. Yes. So it, the genetics involved is really basic. Uh, so it's called mazel selection. And essentially what you're doing is looking at, in this case, corn is mostly what I work with. So the native varieties of corn. So you're simply looking at your crop and identifying individual corn plants that are performing well. And so there's some various uh, kinds of performance we're looking at. So disease resistance and how much crop is on the plant. So is it three cobs of corn, four, six, and, and how big are they? And so we're looking for, or we were looking for those kinds of things in the plants that we would select for, uh, keeping the seed from. So we'd mark those plants, say with a piece of string or something, and then come back to them at harvest time and, and look again at their performance. You know, are they still showing good disease resistance and good production? Uh, and so then we'd pick those, uh, cobs of corn to hold aside for seed for the next planting. And wow. so it's, it, it was that basic. It's just, you know, no, no need to be able to write or, or read to understand those concepts. Yeah. I, and I get that, but still it's, uh, it's got to feel good and you know, how much difference you actually made in, you know, people's lives and, you know, brought, was able to share that knowledge. Yeah, we did make a difference. It was, um, it was really satisfying. I was the third volunteer in that program. So, uh, you know, most people know Peace Corps assignments go for two years. And so there, the program had been going for four years before I, before I started. And by the end of, of my program, so in year, at the end of year five or six, excuse me, um, we had seen 
an increase of like 60 to 70% in yields uh, compared to year zero of the program. So I think it was quite successful. That it does sound very successful. Uh, so you did, you know, you were at, at Oregon State, did some time in the Peace Corps, and then did you work with your dad at Cottonwood first, or did you work with uh, Isabel at, at DuPont first? I started Cottonwood before I worked at DuPont. Yep. Okay. Okay. Um, so just your dad's passion for wine just kind of got him in the mood to you know, buy a vineyard and plant it, you know, with that being like his, his little side hustle, you know, fun gig is, is that kind of how that started? So in addition to wine, my dad was always passionate about anything having to do with agriculture, especially uh, beef cattle was his, his main passion. So he and his partner had a property in the Yola Hills that they bought in I think 91, 92 and about 20 acres and, and most, a lot of it pasture and, and a little bit of forest. Uh, so we did have a, a little two acre plot that we decided to develop and do a vineyard on that property. Um, so yeah, I think. The reason behind Cottonwood had more to do with the wine passion than, than actually, you know, wanting to grow grapes. So that was the growing grapes was more of the side hustle, I guess. Right. No, I thought that, that is, that is great. And, you know, you did that project with your dad for quite some time Did the, how did the, uh, you know, did he get you out in the field and, you know, um, tie you up with a bunch of rope and said, you go, you will make wine for me. Or how, how did that yeah. happen? No, uh, no, it was more my idea. So when I got back from the Peace Corps in 96, I started into the industry on the vineyard management and development side of things. And I did that for five years, uh, until one when I did the, um, internship with Isabel. But in, let's see, 99, we planted our little vineyard and right. we, we did our first um, cottonwood wine in the O2 vintage. Wow, very nice. It did, uh, so it looks like cottonwood isn't around anymore? Is that? Yeah, we quit doing that in uh, with the 2015 vintage, I believe. Wow, it's... Can I ask why you decided to kind of shut that down? Um, well, as it is, I, I feel like I have two or three jobs already and right. that, that was a third or fourth one to do. So I just, I think, you know, my dad was, was getting older and, uh, and he wanted to sort of begin to back out of it and retire, if you will. <laughs> um, right. So, so there was, if I had continued with Cottonwood, it would have been all me. So, uh, you know, an additional job, my dad was doing all of the uh, farming and accounting and, and uh, I was doing the wine baking and marketing and sales. So 
think you can understand that would be a lot more yeah. to do. Yeah, most, most definitely. So is that vineyard still uh, around? Is, is it within the, you know, does it belong within the family or are people, you know, sourcing grapes from that vineyard or, or anything of that nature? Uh, we, we went ahead and removed it. Oh, okay. Well, that had to be sad, I'm sure, in some respects. Yeah. Uh, you talked about uh, working with Isabel uh, from DePonte. Oh, uh, that I, I've heard of her name quite a bit. She seems to be quite the, the influence and, you know, make some absolutely amazing wines. Uh, what was, what was that experience like for you to, to work, to work with Isabel? Well, it was really great. I mean, she continues uh, the things I learned during that vintage continue to have a big influence on the way I think about making Pinot Noir and um, the, the practices that we employ in winemaking at Irish Vineyards. And I don't have a, a frequent contact with Isabel anymore, but I, I've seen her, you know, here and there over right. the years since working with her. And, um, and it's always a pleasure to see her and talk to her. Um, you know, I really, I, I like her, not only her winemaking style, but just the way that she goes around making, making things happen at the winery and teaching and very inspirational person. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I visited uh, a vineyard called Lonesome Rock earlier this year. Mm -hmm. And from my understanding, it used to be owned, you know, uh, uh, so the person, the, the couple who bought it, uh, the husband was telling me, Danny, was that he, you know, he bought the vineyard from the owner of DePonte and mm -hmm. that Isabel makes Lonesome Rock's uh, wine, you know, t today. So uh, are you familiar at all with that Lonesome Rock vineyard or anything? I've never worked with those grapes. No. Okay. I was just curious. I mean, it seems like a, a very interesting vineyard itself. And I was just curious if you had any, any thoughts or anything about it. So I was just curious. Yeah, no, I don't know enough about, I think it's, uh, I want to say it's located, uh, west of Carlton a little okay. bit. Yeah. yeah. That's about all yeah. I know about it. <laughs> no, that's, that's sure. Um. I have to tell you, I was at the, uh, I was at the 2022, uh, McMinnville wine classic and, you know, it came down to, it was, it was a long day and the, you know, we're trying to come through and figure out the, the best of show. Mm -hmm. And so it, you know, it came down to a, a sparkling wine and, and your Pinot Gris. And, and I have to say, I was, uh. I, I was pulling for the sparkling because I'm, I'm one, I'm a big sparkling fan and two, you know, sparkling is just, uh, it, it, to me, it's up and coming. It's up and rising. Yes. Uh, and first, let me just say congratulations on, you know, on your Pinot Gris getting the best of show. That was quite something. Thank you. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. Oh, uh, you know, you mentioned your, your sparkling program and, uh, you know, you'd read how it's, it's up and coming. What, uh, I'm just, I'm just curious, how long has Iris been making a sparkling? 
we started our sparkling program with the 2015 vintage. Um, and so I started at Iris in 2008. And I think after, after the 08 vintage, I started to think about our estate vineyard and the fact that it was much later in ripening than most of the parts of the valley. And I always had a passion for sparkling wine up until that time, mainly in drinking it. But I had made some before at home um, just to try it out and see, see what I could do. Right. And so I began to suggest to the owners that we think about, you know, starting a small traditional method sparkling program. Um, in 2011, we had a very cool vintage, late bud break, late bloom, cool summer. Um, and we, this still amazes me. We saw that we weren't going to get our grapes ripe enough to make much of it into red Pinot Noir wine. And, uh, the president of the company at the time had, uh, some ties, previous relationship with people working at Rankin Riddle in California. It's a big system, sparkling wine winery. So we made a deal with them to make base wine, like most of our Pinot Noir, base for sparkling wine, yes. And then even at that time, we didn't pick uh, the bulk of our Pinot Noir until after the 1st of November. And well, that year, yeah. And, and uh, I think they requested a maximum PA of 10 grains per liter. Yeah. We were just below. Yeah, that was a, an interesting vintage. <laughs> so. Following the 11 vintage, I, I started to push a little harder, for, you know, making some sparkling, at least in years like that, where it was really cool and we're getting great traveling for, for red wine. Yeah. Finally in 15, I went ahead and I made a batch using on my own time and money using chalice fruit. I made a brute rosé. And they, uh, they liked the wine and they, they programmed from me. So here we are. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No, you're welcome. Um, so today are you, you know, doing everything in, in house? Cause I know a lot of people use, you know, uh, radiant sparkling, you know, to, to outsource it. I'm just, I'm just kind of curious. Yeah. So we do everything in-house, uh, you know, we built our own riddling bins or our own T-Rock bins, excuse me, and, uh, riddling racks for, for using here in-house. So we do make all the base wine and we do the tirage bottling here and, uh, aging uh, on tirage of all the wines. And then we, we do the disgorging as well. So, you know, we don't send anything out. Well, that's, and I imagine that hand riddling is, uh, 
that gets to be fun at times. It is. And, and, in quotation yeah. marks. <laughs> we did buy a, um, a gyro palette or uh, auto okay. rhythm. Yeah. So we okay, do have. Very nice. Yeah. Most of it goes on the auto riddler. There's a miscellaneous small lots or, uh, and, and lately just because of the supply chain issues that seem to be alleviating now, we do have some sparkling entourage in bottles that don't fit in our cages for the auto riddler. So we have to hand riddle those, uh, but it's, it's not a, not a whole lot of wine to be by hand. But well, that's, that, that's good. Uh, getting back to your best of show Pinot Gris, uh, Iris itself seems to be pretty, uh, you and Iris, you know, you, you all like your Pinot Gris and you've heavily have invested in that, if I understand correctly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. It's a big, a big part of what we do. I think, uh, that it kind of makes us unique, uh, amongst Oregon wineries to have such a big focus on Pinot Gris. You know, obviously there's King of State and, um, there are some other big Pinot Gris producers in the state, but, um, I think there are just a few of us that, uh, I think at this point we're say 55% Pinot Noir and maybe 40, 35, 40% Pinot Gris. And then a mix of other things to fill that out. And, uh, I would guess there are very few wineries that have that high a percentage of Pinot Gris production. I, I would completely agree. I haven't heard of many people that, you know, that have that much Pinot Gris on, on, uh, after making that much. Oh, I'm curious. Uh, so I know Michael Lundin has a method traditional, uh, Pinot Gris sparkling. Have you given any thought to doing a sparkling Pinot Gris? That we do four different sparkling wines and three of them under Arite label. So it's a black label. It's sort of, you can think of it as a reserve label. And I'm trying to promote that label now is mostly a sparkling label. And then our fourth sparkling wine is under the iris label and it's a non-vintage brute um and it is at least a third pinot gris so we're pinot noir chardonnay and pinot gris those are all Ooh. the three varietals we grow in our vineyard and um to this point uh the vast majority of our sparkling wines are made from estate fruit um, mm-hmm. so we're uh, erite pretty much understood to be state, uh, but the brute kind of reserving the, the right to source some fruit for that, if I need to, uh, and the exact percentages of the different varietals in that wine can vary from year to year, but the kind of target is a, a third, a third, a third on those. Very cool. I, I need to check that out. I haven't, I have yet to try that. Oh, um, so I, I've read that you mentioned some advice that you'd give, uh, some young winemakers would be, you know, if you're about to do something with wine and, uh, you think, you know what you're doing, but you've never done it before to, to make a phone call. 
<laughs> right. Have you, uh, what, what have you done in your career or, you know, can, can you remember a time in your career where you, where you should have made a phone call? Oh yeah. 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 You want can examples? I uh, well, I mean, if you, if you're willing, if you're willing to share one, I would love to, to hear. Uh, well, the first thing that pops to mind is, uh, when I was assistant winemaker at Owen Row, um, there was, we had this lot of Pinot Noir that, um, was pretty high in pH. I think it was approaching four in, in pH. And so there's that high of a pH, you can have some issues with microbiological stability and things like that. And so that was what I was thinking about, uh, when I decided to adjust the acid on that wine and probably took it a little too far. Um, and it wasn't within stylistically within what the winemaker's goals were for that wine. So, um, yeah, definitely would have been a good time to, to make a phone call on that one. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Oh. Uh, you know, we always hear stories of the Oregon wine community, how they kind of come together and help each other out. You know, is there, it's, you know, a time that you can remember in your career where the Oregon wine community has like stepped up and, you know, bailed you out and helped you out in a big way. Hmm. Uh, I, I think it happens in little ways all the time. I, I can't say that I've had. I guess it depends how you look at it, like how big it is. Um, right. But, you know, just in terms of finding the grapes that I need each year, you know, the, the connections that I have within the industry, whether it's on the viticultural side or that I developed in the first part of my career or later on, uh, you know, just knowing people uh, who are growing the grapes and knowing other winemakers who you know, finding out where they're sourcing or if they know of uh, a vineyard that has grapes available. Uh, it's just always really useful to have those connections to to be able to, to um, put everything together for the, the coming harvest in terms of fruit sourcing. Uh, there's always, you know, we're talking about making the phone call uh, despite my years of experience in winemaking that every once in a while, there's a situation you haven't dealt with before or a little wrinkle you didn't expect. And, um, you know, so there, there's uh, resources out there for all of us. Yeah, most definitely it's there. There are some, definitely some great stories and everybody helps one another, which is always, always good to see. Yeah. And it's, it's important to do, not only is it, does it encourage more of a sense of community? But I think most winemakers in Oregon um, or Willamette Valley, if you want to just talk about the Willamette, understand that it's in our interest that everyone in the region is making good wine because it, it just makes everyone who's buying our wine and drinking our wine uh, more likely 
to continue to do so. So, you know, if winery X is over here, isn't getting any advice from anybody and they're making wine that's subpar, um, that reflects on all of us. That is so very true. Uh, so I have some rapid fire questions for you, then I can, I can get you out of here. All right. All right. Um, what is your, who is your favorite artist to listen to during harvest? Boy, uh, we do listen to music. Uh, my, my tastes are kind of varied and, and I, you know, gosh, artists, I love, I love classic rock. I love like, funk and hip hop and things like that. Um, if you're going to make me mention a name, I'll just say Aretha Franklin. That that's that no that's that's cool that's great. Oh, so just a quick sidebar question on the classic rock question. You know, on the classic rock. I had a discussion this past weekend with somebody, and uh, you know we played we were playing some classic rock, and a late nineteen eighties band you know came into that to that mix. You know, it was it was one of the hair bands. So right, would. I, I was having a small connection. I'm sorry. Oh no 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 no! It, that's okay. Oh, uh, so the the question is, you know, would you consider the like the late 1980s, you know, hair bands to be part of uh, the big umbrella for classic rock? I'm gonna say no. I would agree. Oh, uh, yes. No, I, I I would agree as well. But when you look at it. In terms of today, it probably is classic rock, and that's just that's hard. That's hard for me to get around. Oh sure, and I love eighties rock too, but I don't really consider it to be classic. No, I, I would agree. Uh, what is your favorite indulgent food? Lasagna. Next, yeah. My if you mom, choose, my mom was always. Uh, uh, she, she loved to make uh, lasagna for special occasions. So I always got that, you know, for my birthday or, uh, things like that. And so it's, it's a strong kind of childhood memory. And so I make it myself now, but nice. it still, still feels special. It is, it, there is very something, there's something special about lasagna. I love it through and through. Yeah. If you could choose a superpower, what would it be? Super, like, like, um, flying like, stuff like what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Um, how about being able to talk to the animals? Ooh, that would be nice. That would be yeah. amazing. Or harvest. Yeah. Your, your harvest notes, are they digital or handwritten? Digital. And then last book you read, it could be on audible, uh, or even like a, a podcast or something. It's called ice and it's about how to make clear cocktail ice by a guy named camper English. Cool. That sounds fun. Yeah, I know that short, there are 
drunk weed and um, I, I have people over for cocktails all the time. And so it's a nice little touch. It is. I know that there's a, there, there, there's a company in downtown Portland. I believe that, you know, that's all that they do is provide clear cubes of ice to, yep. to restaurants. Yep. Yeah. A lot of bars buy the ice. Yeah. That is very cool. Well, that's all the questions that I have, you know, for you today. Do you have any questions or anything for me? I don't think so. Okay. Well, Aaron, I really appreciate you taking the time. This has been a, a pleasure and wonderful. Uh, you know, thank you again for taking the time. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Thank you for joining me on this flavorful voyage through the world of wine on the Wine Notes podcast. I've been your host and guide, AJ Winesville, and it's been an absolute pleasure sharing these captivating stories with you. But alas, like the last sip of a fine vintage, our time together must it. But don't fret, my wine-loving friends. The cellar doors of the Wine Notes podcast will always remain open, waiting for you to return and explore new conversations, stories, and musings from the captivating people behind the magical world of wine. Before you go, hit that subscribe button on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and don't forget to leave a sparkly five-star review to help spread the word. And to our glasses clink again, remember to savor life's moments and let the spirit of wine and camaraderie linger on your palate. Cheers, and as always, may your wine glass be full, your heart be light, and your journey be delight. Thank you again.